Hello and welcome to another episode of the Indie Alternative Podcast. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by John Stewart. Uh, John Stewart is the guitarist of Sleeper and The Wedding Present. John talks to me about his new book, uh, Dylan, Lennon, Marks and God, which came out uh, in December. And I've put links to where you can buy that in the show notes. And he talks about Sleeper and The Wedding Present and his time in the States as well. It's a really fascinating conversation and uh, John was very generous with his time. So thanks a lot, John. Just before we hit the interview, a quick reminder again of all the ways you can support this podcast. If you haven't done so already, uh, follow me on the socials. All the links will be in the show notes again. Also, if you want to support the podcast financially, you can do that as well by buying me a virtual coffee. And the link to that is also in the show notes. And lastly, if you haven't done so already, please write a review or leave a rating or both because uh, that really helps as well. That's it for The Waffle. Here's John. Welcome to the podcast, John Stewart. How are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me on. We've been communicating now for about best part of two years, I reckon, to get this. Yeah, I'm sorry it's <laughs> taken so long. I hope it's worth the wait. <laughs> I wanted um, to have I wanted to have something to talk about, and then the book kept getting delayed. Yeah. Uh, you, so yeah, you've written a book though. I mean, this yeah, is the most important thing. And it came out in in December. Um, so the yeah. book is Dylan, Lennon, Marx and God. Yeah, it's based on my PhD. And when I suggested that for the title, my supervisor nearly fell off her chair. So I knew it was a good one. <laughs> it's It should really be called Dylan, Lennon, Marx and Darwin. It's a, a dual biography of Bob Dylan and John Lennon. And it uses two American Marxist sociologists, one who's... um. Well, one's a sociologist, one's a literary theorist, and then it uses a, a evolutionary psychology. The sociologist it looks at, I use him to look at their protest music. The literary theorist, I use him to look at their ideas about the past and their heritage. And then the uh, the kind of Darwinian e- evolutionary psychology, it's called. Um, I use that to examine their different beliefs. Because our belief systems, I, I think, are... Uh, quite heavily not determined but often subconsciously shaped by even the, the psychology of what it means what it must have meant to be an early human i think a lot of that stuff's like a ghost in our mm. thinking system well we know it is because of things like diet that's why we all we live in a food toxic environment and because we're not used to things being so calorific or group think all those things and um so I just applied it to their their ideas about religion and faith and belief and uh, yeah and then my supervisor sent it to Cambridge University Press and they liked it and that because it's an academic book although it's written for popular consumption it got sent to reviewers and one thought it was great and the other one was like a bit sniffy and then it went to a third reviewer and he he, he or she it's anonymous was very kind and said it really really should be out there so it came out um i finished it during the lockdown period to turn it from a phd into a book licensed a bunch of pictures licensed a bunch of lyrics from bob dylan and then halfway through that process he sold his publishing to universal yeah so last time we were 
in email contact. I was like, I've got this legal thing to sort out. Yeah. So that's what that was. I had to write a begging letter to Universal and say, Bob Dylan has very kindly allowed me to use some of his songs, 18 songs for £600, and you just paid $350 million. Um, are we still okay with that? Or he, A lawyer in the UK said they're going to stick a note on it. And I was like, if they do that, I can't. I'm going to have to rewrite the whole thing. But they were, I got a one, I sent them an essay. I sent them like a 300 word essay about the book and how long it had taken and the ideas behind it and how cool it was and how exciting it was to get it out there. And I got one word back from Universal. The head of publishing at Universal just said approved. Stop. Yeah. And that was it. And so then I had to go to another lawyer and go, does this count? Is this enough? Yeah, and they yeah. were like, yeah, there's a, there's a legal term. It's Latin. I can't remember what it was. That basically means, yeah, that's enough. That's all you need. Otherwise, they've misled you. So, so then I had to go to Cambridge University Press and said that, yes, they're all fine with it. And then it came out. Um, I'm most proud of the sleeve. It looks beautiful. If you have a look on Amazon, Dylan Lennon Marks on God, the sleeve is done by one of my ex-students who now runs a design company, designed by Soap, uh, John. And um, he very kindly did it just for, for fun. And um, it just looks great. It's like the four of them; they're in a band together. I like to think of it as. Yes, yeah. Are you? Do you think this is the start of of venturing into you know writing more sort of biographies and things like that? If you've got the book, um, I'd like to do a book on social psychology and popular music. I'm really interested in how we kind of club together around songs and movements and music and bands and scenes, and I I think a lot of that world has a kind of a standard narrative. Um, kids are good, grown-ups are bad, vote Labour, vote Labour, vote Labour, as they said in The Young Ones. And yeah. I, I think there's some really interesting stuff underneath it. Largely around the evolutionary psychology stuff that I read up on, on religion and faith and beliefs when I was exploring that. So that would be, that, if I do another one, it will be that, yeah. In terms of like lyrics and stuff for the music, and mm. do you ever draw upon any of that when you're writing? And or where do you kind of pitch ideas? I mean, back in obviously in the early days of Sleeper, and then obviously the, the the latest album. How how was the kind of writing process for that in general? Well, mostly with Sleeper, the first album it was me and Louise co-wrote quite a lot of it, but she was always the stronger melody writer. And then the second album, it was Louise and Andy co-wrote most of it, and I think. Louise was always the lead writer, no question. Um, I mean, she's just a brilliant songwriter. And as as a musician, I'm just someone who hangs around with great songwriters and tries not to fuck it up, <laughs> to be honest with you. Mm. Um, so uh, tries to kind of do justice to the, what they're doing as best I can. And, and with lyrics, often, I mean, the lyrics are all 100% Louise in Sleeper. And um, what... What the joy of that process is, is if you're working with someone who's got a tune and some chords and you've just got to kind of come up with a, a little guitar melody to go over the top or something, or maybe a, a break in the song to just make it change up. That's that's easy to do when somebody else has done the hard work. You're just doing the, you're just decorating it. Mm. So that's, you're in a very lucky position, really, because somebody else is responsible for the, the backbone of it and the shaping of it. And uh, you're in this fantastically luxurious position where 
they've written 95% of the lyrics and you or 100% and you get to go well what about that word there and you you've got the brain space to just have the overview of the song and think of a cool rhyme or a um, just the one little suggestion that's a really cool little interjection on the lyrics yeah um, which which is quite cool when that happens there was a couple I, I won't say where but there was a couple of those where you know someone's like should I use this word or that word and you go what about this word and they go yeah cool that works and and that's just a great moment and you can only do that because you're not right in right in there you, as a writer you're so close to stuff you can't often detach from it and think have a have a fresh idea whereas if you're someone who's just like dipping in and out who kind of knows what the person might be striving for you can you've sometimes got that headspace to just sprinkle a bit of fairy dust on something yeah um which is really nice did that first album come come quite easily or quickly or what was it um difficult to come to the the final kind of sound or identify the sound as well no, we were just we were massive Pixies fans, which I think is pretty obvious on the record. In fact, when I met Frank Black, he was like, "Oh, I know you guys," and I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to want some copyright. <laughs> he's going to want five for ten percent." And um, and then we just liked sort of quirky pop. I mean, the, we got the band together with an advert in the Melody Maker, as everyone did in those days, and ours said. Pixies meets the part influences Pixies meets the Partridge family, which I still think <laughs> is a good summary. Yeah. Uh, and um and then we wrote a bunch of stuff and then we got a record deal and we just thought this is not good enough what we've written, so we we junked everything and we just wrote a whole load of new songs. So our first album's kinda of like our second album really, in that we'd we'd written a load of stuff and then just canned it and thought we can do better. So pretty much everything on that record was written um, from Alice in Vain onwards was written in the you know year between when we got signed and when it came out. It was all brand new. Yeah, and it was in that same sound, the sort of British post grunge, just on that cusp of grunge slash Brit pop yeah. feel. So, how important was the produ- the production side of things? Because you worked with Stephen Street. Mm. With yeah, he's throughout pretty much everything, uh, and and to the latest record as well. And and how how kind of instrumental was was he in getting you where you were and the sound? Well, Stephen's just got a fantastic overall vision for what a record should be, and then like most great producers, he kind of gets everyone in a space where they can contribute their best to what everyone's striving towards. So you have a kind of a common goal which is a project that's going to be this and have that on it and sound like this and represent you at this particular moment in time and his genius as a producer is to to put everyone in a position where that can happen and a lot of that's vibe and keeping an eye on the clock and the budget and um and just the confidence of working with someone who you know is going to make it pull together Mm. on time and on target which a lot of people have this idea that you know rock and roll is like this sort of crazy world of random creativity but it's not it's it's a lot of it's 99 percent graft and you know 95 percent graft five 
percent inspiration and um he's able to shape the event the moment so that everyone's working together and he's just got a really good vision for how how them it's going to be recorded when it's going to be done what's the quickest way to make it happen when it's enough I don't know, mm. that, yeah that's cool we can move on now that's great and if Stephen Street's going yeah that's done cool you're like okay I don't need another take it's a Stephen Street tell me this <laughs> you know he must. He's, if he said that to Johnny Marr then he and then I, I'll take that so you can't I mean what else are you going to do you're not going <laughs> to yeah no I need to do 25 more takes you know yeah 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 and he just inspires you with confidence because he's very, very together and very straightforward chap. Mm. Really, really well organised and just a genuinely nice human being. We made the first record with Paul Corkett and then Stephen ended up mixing it because he couldn't decide when it was done. Paul's a great guy, lovely, lovely guy and a brilliant producer. But I think we, what Stephen brought to it was just this ability to go, okay, that's it, that's done, yeah. move on. And you really need someone who can do that. Um, because otherwise bands will just go around and around and around in circles forever. What, what was it like uh, in the band looking out at what was a mad time? You know, we talked about you know indie Britpop scene in the 90s, that explosion. But you were, um, you know, you're a guitarist. Um, you're not a front person. You know, there was all the the issues and, and controversy, but just all the the ladism and all the sort of it, the stuff that came with that era. Looking out at it from your perspective, what was it like? Do you look back on it fondly still or is it toxic? What, what do you feel about it now? It just seems like a long time ago now. And um, it was different. It was a different time. I think the thing you've got to realise, if you're not in a band, when you're in a band, um, when that stuff's happening to you, it could end at any time. Literally, your next single, if your next single doesn't go in the charts or your, you know, your your tour doesn't sell, that's it. It's over. It was very competitive. There was hundreds of bands around. Bands were coming and going. Getting a record deal didn't, you know, it was great, but, but loads of bands were getting record deals. Um, so, and every time you put something out, there was, you know, literally dozens of other bands around mm. doing similar stuff so you didn't really have any expectations and and you would just you you knew that pop careers were short and so most of the time you just spent thinking how do i keep this going for another three months that's oh. that and, and if you had an album out you're like okay so i've got i, I know what God. i'm doing i remember when smart was a hit we got picked up for the next option and i was like great we know what we're doing for a year now amazing yeah. And that was as long as we ever got, because then the album's due, and then you, and then if it's a success, you've got singles in between, and then if the if they work, great, the album's going to come out, and then if that works, you're going to get to tour. So it, it was basically three months. You live in three months at a time, and and you kind of think when you get a record deal, all your problems are going to be solved. But in many ways, just lots of other bigger ones come along. What were your early early influences then in terms of like um, musical heroes and guitar heroes and things? Well, I my the people that inspired me the most were the Beatles and um, and Bob Dylan, hence the book, and I just the quality of songwriting that those artists had at the time. I just felt 
And I still do. I feel that it's a pinnacle. Obviously, they were put in a position to achieve that. Something like Sergeant Peppers. No one else is going to get that amount of studio access. And because the you know the, because of the career they'd had, they were in a unique position, and they stepped up to it. And they're you know all right, they were the biggest band in the world, and you think they've got an element of longevity. But at the same time, you know their their career could have ended at any time. And lots of people thought it had before Sergeant Peppers came out. You know, think about what. I mean, obviously, Kanye West is like a billionaire eye, so he can mess up. But think about the trouble Kanye got in over Trump. That's basically where John Lennon was when he said he was yeah. bigger than Jesus. And that was a career-ending statement that they actually walked right through. And he, he actually apologized for that and rode back on it a little bit. But at the same time, um, dove straight into making the most kind of scabrous anti-war comments because he, he was really upset with what was happening in Vietnam. And, um, you know, that was a pretty brave thing to do. Yeah. And, that you know, their, their career obviously did end when they broke up, but that none of that stuff's guaranteed. Bob Dylan had something happened to him in 1966 and he just stopped for a year, whether it was a motorbike accident or drugs or whatever it was, we'll probably never know. Hmm. so it's um even when you're at that level there's no guarantees and um anybody who's managed to keep anything going in music i think has has achieved something just by the fact that that you've got another project on the horizon paul cockett when when we were making our first album he was like you know what is the point of this why are you doing this what's the what's the goal here and we sat down and we also, we were, all right, the goal of making your first album is to get to make a second album. Yeah. That's what the goal is. And then the goal of making your second album is to get to make a third one. And then your goal of making your third album is to get to make a fourth one. And hopefully at that point, your publishing deal will come up and you can re-sign your publishing for a bigger advance. And at that point, you might have a little bit of something to show for it. That's all it is. It's just keeping it going. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Amongst incredible competition and... Uh, everything else that you know media and we were just really lucky to have louise i think obviously <laughs> who's just an absolute star yeah. and um brilliant at what she does as every band obviously needs someone in there who genuinely knows what they're doing and who's really really good at what they mm. do and that's um just privileged to work to work with her really you worked with Katie Lang as well. Mm. That must have been a fantastic uh, time. And you, you moved out to the States in late 90s? Yeah, after the third, after the It Girl, we had, the It Girl went platinum. So it was like, yes, right, we know what we're doing for another year. And I'd met this girl out in America when we were on tour, shot a video in LA, and um, just absolutely fell in love with that and moved out. And... Um, that was the next. We, we, so I we wrote, we did one of our sort of long distance writing records via post or email that was, became quite common during lockdown, and um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it it was just a dream for like two years nearly. It was fantastic in um, in this kind of in the hood in downtown LA north of downtown which is now quite a funky area it's called harlem park but at the time it was it was the um it was pretty yeah it was it was funky in a, a kind of a 
not a good funky way when I lived <laughs> there. There was you could hear gunshots a lot, a lot of the time, and mm. um, you know, which for an English kid was really exciting. And uh, it's uh, it was ju- it was just a great privilege. And whilst I was out there, I got contacted by a friend who'd worked with Sleep and said, "Do you want to play on Katie Lang's album?" And I was like, "Hell yeah!" You know. Mm. So I got to go in the studio, and we were cutting the record, and the the it was in the, one of the big complexes on Sunset uh, in that area, and um, door went, and uh, people were like, "Ah, oh, uh, Robbie Williams is here! Robbie Williams is here!" And I was like, <laughs> "Robbie Williams from Take That? Oh, that's all right, I've met him." Um, but people were absolutely freaking out; they were going yeah. crazy. And I was like, it's only Robbie Williams. And of course it was Robin Williams. He was there to make a charity record. So so I opened the door expecting it to be one to take that. And it's a great grace living comedian. So I was like, oh, sorry. I th- Robin Williams. Hello. He was just really sort of yeah. polite and shy. Obviously I didn't scream Robin Williams at him. My head just went. No, <laughs> Robin Williams. Wow, that's he, cool. He was doing something with Monty Python, so then this half of Monty Python turned up. Eric Idle showed up, and it was like, oh. "This is uh, this is like a dream." How does it feel to be uh, classed as a heritage band then these days? I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. I would okay. I mean, geez, it's, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, really. I mean, um, a it means you're part of a thing that happened once and people remember you and you're still alive to enjoy it um that'll do because there's so many bands that have never well as you we talked as you mentioned mm. earlier on the bands were coming and going and it's there are only there are a few and there's a handful of bands that could just continue to to draw in the crowds and continue to do the you know the milestone gigs and things like i saw you at your delayed um gig at the tour you did with the Blue Tones and oh yeah 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 and it, and and that was amazing to hear that album in full and and other stuff besides and just you know you've got another one coming up another milestone gig coming up yeah we're doing the it we're doing the it girl tour as well uh, in two months time and um, I think it's just I I'm just very lucky to work with two incredibly talented people Louise and Andy and. Um, God, I mean, just trying not to um, try and do justice to to their ideas, really. It's, yeah, Andy's Andy's like the nicest guy you could ever want to work with. He's an incredible individual. He's almost completely unfazable, and to have someone like that in a band is just such a luxury. I suspect every band's got got one. They've got the creative genius, and then they've got the chilled person who just makes things is 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 just great to work with and so yeah and and just having and obviously louise is a massive talent and a brilliant front person and just an amazing songwriter and a genius lyricist and then andy's just really good musically with shaping songs and working out where they need to go and Mm. um so it's uh and temperament wise he's just an incredible person to work with What's your role then, do you reckon, then, John? Oh, I'm just hanging on. <laughs> Happy to be there. <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. like trying to stay in tune and put a rip. But, you know, I'm, I try and put a bit of um, angst. I'm, I bring a bit of angst to it, I think. 
yeah a bit of tension or a distortion or something or yeah if that makes sense and what, what's the future um uh, john do you think then for you i mean have you got plans to do more albums or have you have you got other things to you'd like to try uh, I don't know. I've got. Um, I have a job working at a school, and um, or will soon be a university, hopefully. Um, and I've been here for twenty years teaching music degrees, and, and now run a master's degree program at the school. And um, since I got my doctorate, that sort of feels like the place to go. And it's really nice to be in music education, having done something, because quite a lot of people in music education that have an experienced kind of music at, at that level and I'm not I have an experience because I'm particularly brilliant at it I was I just I was lucky to work with good people I think but at least I I know what it means to do that stuff I mean I've published quite a lot of res- academic research I just did a thing on um <laughs> uh the Archie Sugar Sugar which I'm quite proud of, which is coming out next month in a book. Uh, and um, it's, a, it's the psychology behind sugar, sugar, which is to do with our reward system. So it links sugar with romantic love. And they're both the same reward systems that keep us alive because without, without um, a craving for high calorie food, I mean, no one ever, no one ever's like, oh, you know, once I've had one, one leaf of cabbage i've finished finished the whole head right? <laughs> we just don't do that because we did we evolved with vegetables around all over the place. yeah yeah it's the high calorie stuff that kept us alive during the long winters but if you had a great if you had if your reward systems were attuned to that that was a one-time survival advantage and now these things are next to every checkout it's actually you know yeah. an impedance to survival so i'm really interested in how how those things might influence in unseen ways today. And sugar, sugar is a great example of that because on the one hand, it's, it's about sugar. And on the other hand, it's about love and sugar and love are the same. The same reward chemicals go off when you have sugar and when you, when you have a romantic encounter. Um, and that's, you know, that sustenance and procreation are the two things, two of the most important things we need for survival. And it's a completely manufactured band. It's The Archies were a cartoon band who never existed. They existed because the monkeys were too, too salty to work with. The world's most manufactured band at the time, the monkeys, wanted <laughs> to write their own songs. Yeah. So the guy behind them was like, right, I'm going to get cartoon characters in because they haven't got their own voices. So they're literally the most manufactured pop item you could imagine prior to, you know, the sort of the, the virtual artists that are coming along today. Yeah, and yeah. In fact, they're in the 60s, like that really. And they, they produce this syrupy sweet pop song, which is actually a profound meditation on what it means to be alive. I love doing all that stuff, really. Yeah. And um, if I can get, if I can do any more of it, I'd like to do that. And um, I'm currently doing a, project with a wedding present we've got 24 songs coming out most of which were written during lockdown and then for the next sleeper stuff i guess it's that's up to louise it's when she writes some more stuff well i look forward to um 
hopefully seeing you live then are you doing anything down south down south you're doing Portsmouth again yes for Southampton or is it I think I've we've got I've got tours of both bands coming up and they involve those dates I can't remember off the top of my head I'll have a look in a minute and check out where you're coming and I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully I'll try and come down and see you again um give you a heads up but I shall let you go John thank you so much for um for joining me and uh, it's been really really interesting thank you yeah thanks for having me on the book dylan lennon marks and god if anyone's a Beatle fan or a bob dylan fan it's it's hard to write about them in new ways but i'm i'm really proud of it because i think i i genuinely believe that i have done something new and i found like loads of new things that people didn't realize which is hard yeah about those two there are they they the times they were in the studio together that people don't necessarily know about particularly one time in new york spoke to some of the people that that were in the studio with him there and nothing happened dylan walked out that kind of stuff but those little moments where in in history where those people kind of bumped into each other and it's just great to compare them because they both did so much in their own way um they're like proper genuine iconic artists a little bit like david and louise i suppose but from a different era and um it's a good it's just i really love the opportunity just to delve into what they were about and try and think about it in new ways and and i'm really proud of the result thank you so much john thanks chris it's been great to speak to you thank you so much sound take care cheers see you later bye-bye cheers chris